0: Every year after Easter we are studying through the book of Acts and so we we go back through the book of Act, back to the book of Acts right after Easter And we've taught through Acts 1, Acts 2. Uh, A lot's happened in, in the book of Acts since we started a few years back. Of course, the ascension of Christ in Acts chapter 1, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, a notable miracle of a man born lame in Acts chapter 3 at the gate called Beautiful, and the revival that that initiated, the persecution that started in chapter 4 because the disciples were God was healing people through them, and people were getting saved by the thousands. And then in Acts 5, uh, you know, the church was now formed, but there was some hypocrisy in the church. Uh, This couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Ghost in church, and they dropped dead. That's Acts 5. That's an interesting chapter. And because the ministry in the church was growing, they needed to develop a team concept to ministry, so the deacon's ministry was formed, and select individuals full of faith and full of the Holy Ghost were selected. Uh, one of those individuals was Stephen a, a, an incredible man of God and he in chapter 7 became the first martyr of the New Testament church because of his faith they stoned him but something strategic happened at that moment there was a young man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, and he was there holding the coats of the men that were stoning Stephen he was an eyewitness to Stephen's faith and love and devotion and dedication to Jesus And he heard when when Stephen looked up to heaven and he said, I see the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then he heard this prayer. And this prayer was a prayer that was prayed for everyone that was present that day, including Saul of Tarsus. He said, Father, lay not this sin against their charge. And and the Lord took him. He died, the first Christian martyr. That was the seed that was planted in the heart of one Saul of Tarsus. Now in chapter 8, there was a revival in a place called Samaria because Jesus said in Acts 1 that you'll be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. Well, now the gospel is going beyond just Jerusalem, beyond Judea. In Acts chapter 8, it goes to a place called Samaria. John and Philip preach there, and, 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 and John, or Philip preaches there, and then later Peter and John show up. But Philip's preaching, and people are being saved, and people are being healed, and demons are being cast out of people. Revival breaks out in chapter 8. But in chapter 9, we're going to pick up where we left off a year ago. We begin in, in chapter 9. It's an amazing story of the conversion... Of one Saul of Tarsus who ends up becoming the great Apostle Paul this is the most significant conversion that has ever occurred of all the hundreds of millions of people that have been saved by the grace of God and been born again the most significant and strategic was Saul of Tarsus which is recorded here this conversion in, in Acts chapter 9 because he was the one chosen vessel that God used to write two-thirds of the New Testament. And because of Paul the Apostle, he became the apostle to the Gentile world. The gospel of Jesus Christ went into all the earth. And really, from the ministry of the Apostle Paul was raised up Western civilization. As we know, as we knew it, as we once knew it, the influence of Christianity in the world can be traced all the way back to what happens here in Acts chapter nine you know this past week I read a story about a man that every morning he would wake up and he would pray the same prayer and this was his prayer thank you God I'll take it from here now what did that prayer mean? every morning as soon as he was getting out of bed he would pray the same prayer thank you God I'll take it from here he understood that God by his grace got him through the night and now this was a new day And whatever was to be accomplished in that day, he was now gonna have to make it happen. You see, every farmer in here, or those of you that were raised in a home where your parent or grandparent was a farmer, every farmer knows God sends the rain. But you have to plow the field, and you have to plant the seed. God's not gonna plow the field for us in life, and God's not gonna plant the seed. So there's great theological truth to that short prayer. Thank you, God. I'll take it from here but we can actually take that prayer to a new level if we begin to pray once we've done all that we can do in the natural we say God here's my prayer I'm asking you to take it from here God I've done my best with my marriage God I've done my best with my decisions I've done my best with my finances I've done my best in every area of my life but now I say God would you please take it from here well in Acts chapter 9 The Lord Jesus appears before Saul, before he becomes a believer, and basically he says, I'll take it from here. You know, that phrase, it actually means I'm assuming responsibility and control of this situation from this point forward. I'll take it from here. And really what's about to happen is the Lord is going to tell Saul, I'm going to take you from here. You've been working against me, now you're going to be working for me. You've been scattering, now you're going to be gathering. You've been tearing down, now you're going to be building up. You've been working for the enemy, but I'm recruiting you into my kingdom. This story reveals to us that God is sovereign over all the earth, that God is sovereign over your life and my life. And this story, this incredible testimony of Saul's conversion reminds us that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one is beyond the reach of God's love. And no light has gone too deep, too far into darkness or sin that God cannot rescue them. If there's breath in your lungs, there's hope in your future because of God's sovereign power. Now, who was Saul of Tarsus? Tarsus was an incredible commercial metropolitan city Saul was, he was trained and he was educated in in the greatest institutions of that day. He was one of the most brilliant minds that's ever lived. And he was on God's radar. What was his testimony? Well, after Saul was saved, he ends up becoming the Apostle Paul and he ends up in prison. The one that persecuted Christians was now being persecuted as a Christian. He's in prison and he's writing letters called the prison epistles. And he writes a letter to the church at Philippi and he basically shares his testimony, shares his resume. So before we go to Acts 9, I want us to go to Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. In the words of the Apostle Paul, though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more I was circumcised when I was eight years old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault I once thought these things were valuable but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus Yeshua HaMashiach my Adonai, my Jehovah, my Lord and for his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage that I could gain Christ. woo Wow, Paul. Tell us how you really feel about your relationship with one Jesus Christ. This is a resume of resumes. Paul, according to the flesh, had every reason to be prideful to be boastful. He was a part of God's chosen race. He was a part of God's chosen people, circumcised the eighth day according to the law. He was not of the uncircumcised heathen Gentiles in the world. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a real Hebrew, through and through, pure-blooded, not defiled by Gentile blood. And he was prideful of it but isn't it interesting he says I count it all but garbage he uses the term worthless twice in this translation and garbage compared to Christ now we all know what we do with our garbage right we all have garbage We come to Christ, and we bring a lot of garbage with us when we come to Christ, right? Sometimes people think, I need to clean up before I get saved. No, no, bring your old dirty self, and Jesus will clean you up, amen? Amen. (laughs) But we all know what we do with our garbage. In our house, we accumulate a lot of garbage. I thought when we got rid of one son, our garbage would go down. It just seemed like it went up. And we know what we do with our garbage. I say, Gloria, the garbage is full. Would you please take it out? Yeah, you laugh because you know that's not how it works. (laughs) We all know what we do with our garbage. We get our kids to throw it out. But if they're too busy, it's dead. I was this morning pulling it up, and and I'm saying to myself, oh, why do I have to be the one to always do this? Why can't my son do this? Then I put it in the big trash, and I wait for him to dump the big trash without me having a tell him. But, oh, no. He, you listening to me, son? He doesn't dump the big trash. No, I am take the big trash. Why do I have to? And I'm praising God the whole time I'm dumping the garbage. Garbage! This world is filled with garbage. And the Apostle Paul compared what? He compared his birthplace. He compared his race. He compared his religion to garbage. You don't want to know the real word that Paul used in the Greek language You don't want me today in church to tell you the real word that he used Go to any, any Greek scholar And the real word that Paul used I'm not going to use it because I love my job here, at Trinity I like you showing up every weekend And if I use the real word that Paul used was, I can't believe Pastor Carl said that word in church I didn't, Paul did But I'm not going to I'm going to play it safe like these Bible translators did one translation says, I count it all but dung. Okay, translate it into the English vernacular. Paul says, I count all this but a pile of you know what? I didn't say it. Don't think it. Don't be a dirty mind in church. <laughs> I count it all but that compared to Christ. You know, we live in a world that, where people worship their race. They worship their nationality. They worship their heritage. Now don't get me wrong, I believe you should be thankful for your, for your upbringing, you should be thankful for your heritage, you should be thankful for your culture. If you're black, you should be thankful that you're black. If you're white, you should be thankful that you're white. If you're brown, you should be thankful that you're brown. If you're, if you're yellow, you should be thankful. You should be thankful for your heritage. You should be thankful for your, your origin, your place of birth. You should be grateful. You should love the fact that, God, if you were made a woman, stay a woman. If you were made a man, stay a man. You should be thankful for your gender. You should be thankful if you're tall, be thankful you're tall. If you're short, be thankful you're short. If you're thick, be thankful you're thick. If you're thin, be thankful you're thin. We got so many people that are so unhappy with who they are. They want to be something else or somewhere else or someone else. Be happy with the person that God made you to be and become the best version. Become the best version of the person that God has made you. But it's all a pile of you know what compared. To knowing Jesus, to knowing Him. We worship Him above all else. Before you're a man or a woman, you're a Christian. Before you're a husband or a wife, you're a Christian. Before you're a father or mother, you're a Christian. Before you're whatever your race is, you're a Christian. Before you're an American, <laughs> you're a Christian. Matter of fact, you should be a Christian first. Then a man or a woman, however God made you in your mother's womb. Then you're a husband. Then you're a father. Then you're an American. And then you're whatever else you want to be. That's love of God and love of country. Paul had a reason to be more prideful than any other person in our world. And we have a world filled with the pride of face and the pride of race and the pride of place. And yet Paul, when he got saved, he says, it's all nothing, it's all worthless compared to knowing Jesus. That's not how it started. Here's how it started, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughtering against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus. That city still in existence today. It's about 175 miles uh, outside of Jerusalem. To go to the synagogues, That if he found any of this way, any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Saul was a religious terrorist of the worst kind. He imprisoned Christians, split up families, confiscated possessions and belongings, and saw them to their death. He was a hater of Christians. He was a hater of Jesus Christ. And he's on this road the road to Damascus and he wants to apprehend people of the way. You see early followers of Jesus were not called Christians. They weren't called Christians until Acts chapter 11 verse 26. They were they were described as saints, believers or saints, disciples, people of the way. The term the way, people of the way is mentioned like half a dozen times in the book of Acts. It refers to what Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth and the life. People of the way were people of that persuasion. They were followers of Jesus. You see, there is a way in this world, a way that leads to death. In Proverbs 14, 12, it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. There's the wrong way and there's the right way. The Apostle Paul, before he became the great Paul, was Saul, and Saul was on the wrong road, going in the wrong direction. Some of you today, those watching live video streaming, maybe you're on the wrong road. And you're going in the wrong direction. Jesus wants to use this message to abruptly interrupt your life. To let you know that you're headed in the wrong direction. There's a way that seems right, but in the end it leads to death. My heart broke when I saw on the news this past week that Katy Perry just renounced her her Christianity. Renounced the fact she was raised in a Christian home. She has a mother and a father that love Jesus and they travel and share their testimony and, and preach in churches. And it's fashionable today. It's fashionable today to to deny your faith. It's fashionable today to mock Christianity. She's on a way that may seem right to her, but it's the way that leads to death. Paul, Saul, was on that way, the wrong way, going the wrong way when Jesus showed up. Look at verse 3 of Acts 9. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly... There shined around him a light from heaven. All light in this world comes from heaven. This world is filled with darkness, gross darkness, so thick is the gross darkness that you can cut it with a knife. But the only light and the only illumination that's in this world comes from heaven. And that's why every lost person, they're blinded. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul said, The God of this world, small g, small g case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers lest they see the light of the glorious gospel and be saved. There was a time my life was engrossed in in darkness your life was engrossed in darkness and in the light of God's love and glory shined upon our path and the scales fell from our eyes and we saw Jesus in all of his glory and all of his splendor and we surrendered our life to him those at once despised him ignored him rejected him now are people of the way and now we love him because we see him for who he is this is about to happen to Saul Verse 4 of Acts 9. And he fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Interesting. And Jesus, not an angel, not, not Peter, not John, Jesus himself witnessed to Saul. And anytime time God wants to get your attention, he'll use your name twice. Saul, Saul. That means you're in trouble in a good way with God. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? He said, why are you persecuting me? You see, Jesus takes it personally. What we do to others, we do to him. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 25, verse 44, as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. When you feed the hungry, you're feeding Jesus. When you clothe the naked, you're clothing Jesus. When you visit the sick, you're visiting Jesus. And when you're running to rescue, you are running to save those young people involved in sex trafficking. It's like you're doing it to Jesus. You're saving him. That's what made Mother Teresa such a saint. She went to Calcutta. They said, what are you going to do with this human garbage in the street? She said, it's not human garbage. When I look at them, I see Jesus. And my Savior said, as much as I've done it to the least of these, I've done it to Him. I'm washing the face of Jesus when I wash the face of this homeless person. And she made the world a better place. Come on, church. Can we thank God for people that are making the world a better place? You know, this August... This August, all my wife and I will will have been married 28 years. Now, I love that woman. I love her. She's awesome. I love her because she's my wife. I love her because she's the, the mother of my sons. Notice how men always describe that. Not the mother of our sons, but she's the mother of my sons. I love her because she's my best friend. And every man knows this. You can mess with me, but don't you mess with my wife. You'll feel the wrath of Carl. You mess with my wife. You might be bigger than me, but I can hit harder than you with God's help. Amen. And Jesus is saying, Saul, when you mess with the church, you're messing with me. When we poke at the church, we're poking at Jesus. And when we love the church, we're loving Jesus. I think we need to learn how to treat one another a little bit better in the body of Christ. Come on, don't shout me down because I'm preaching real good today. I know it's not Easter, but I think it's Easter still. <laughs> I remember I was 16, working at Pizza Hut in Albuquerque in a bad area of town. Is there really a good area of town in Albuquerque? I, I don't. I'm just kidding. I could say that I spent over 30 years there. I was working there by myself. Young, skinny arms, and two drunk guys came in, and I was terrified to be honest with you. They were being obnoxious, and I offered to buy their pizza because I just wanted to get them on my good side. I know how to survive. Just want you to know that. And all of a sudden, this, this cool, good-looking guy walked in, boots and jeans, belt buckle with his girlfriend, cowboy hat. He walked in. They were the only people, these drunk guys and this couple, in all of that Pizza Hut restaurant late at night. He sat down and ordered his pizza. His, his wife or girlfriend got up to go use the restroom, and she walked by the table of these two drunk guys. One of them slapped her on the behind. I said, uh-oh. Now, cell phones had not yet been invented. There was no such thing as a smartphone back then, okay? I couldn't YouTube this because it would have been a, a hit. <laughs> and then speaking of a hit, she came back from the bathroom, went back to the table, said something to him. He got up. These guys were bigger than him. He got up, walked over there, and whooped on these two guys like nobody's business. They didn't even see it coming. I'm standing there shocked. I'm like, they messed with the wrong man's woman. You know what I'm talking about? And then he got his woman, and they got on the horse and rode off into the sunset to live happily ever after. (laughs) Because you mess with a man's wife, you're messing with the man. The Bible says in the book of Revelation 21.9 that we are the bride of Christ. And we are to love the church because Christ is the church, and we are the church. We represent Christ. Look at verse 5. And he said, who art thou, Lord? (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Who art thou? It's the Lord. And the Lord, Adonai, Jehovah said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. So many people go through life kicking against the pricks, kicking against the goads, never getting anywhere. Learning that as there's a, a drama by a black playwright entitled, Your Arms Too Short to Box with God. how true that is when you find yourself in a boxing match with God you're going to be on the losing end every time Jacob had to learn that in a wrestling match with God on the side of a riverbank. that that you're not going to outdo God you're not going to Jacob couldn't out deceive God Jacob couldn't trick God Jacob couldn't continue to fool God God finally got a hold of him like God finally got a hold of Saul on this road to Damascus and then it continues in verse 6 So, Saul, trembling and astonished, the very very mission of his life to disrupt the Christian faith, to persecute Christians, has now met the leader of the Christian movement himself, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Astonished, and he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I love that. He's now now officially a Christian. (laughs) He went from persecuting Christians to become a Christian that would one day be persecuted. And he's like, Lord, what do you want me to do? You see, after you give your life to Jesus, you know that you've met Jesus. When one of the first things that comes out of your mouth is, Lord, what would you have me do now with my life? Kind of like what Dr. Cox was saying during the offering, that for Jesus to not just be your Savior, so many people in the Church of America today, Jesus is their Savior, that means fire insurance. But for him to be your Lord means he's your master. It means he's your boss. It means he has the final word in your life and in my life. And if he says surrender something, we surrender it. If he says go in this direction, we go in that direction. If his word says this, we obey it because he is Lord. And our heart, our heart that's now been changed, our heart says, Lord, what would you have me to do? And then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground. Sometimes God has to knock you down to pick you up. And when his eyes were open, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias... And he said, here I am, Lord. Don't you love the early Christians? They were quick to obey. I love that. And so the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight. There's a street called Straight. Saul was on a street called Crooked. But God put him on the right street, the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. We'll stop there. There's an old saying It's one of the biggest lies that ever came out of hell. The old saying goes like this, all roads lead to God. My friend, all roads don't lead to God. But on all roads, you can meet God. I'll say that again, all roads don't lead to God. There's only one way, and that way is Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way you're going to get to heaven, the only way you're going to get to the Father, the only way you're going to get to forgiveness in life is through one, Jesus the Messiah he is the way all roads don't lead to God but you can meet God in all roads you know there are some famous roads in the Bible there's a road to hell Isaiah five fourteen says therefore hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure open her mouth wide to receive you the road to hell is always in good repair because its users pay so dearly for its upkeep the old saying goes there's a road to heaven Matthew seven fourteen, it's called the straight and the narrow road. I hope you're on that road today. There's the road to Emmaus that on this road, these two disciples didn't know it, but Jesus was walking with them on that road to Emmaus. And they should have known it because as he spoke, their hearts did burn within them. Whatever road you're on, sometimes we don't recognize it, but Jesus is on that road with you. You're not on that road alone. There's a road to Jericho, the Bible talks about in Luke 10, 30. On that road, a man was beaten, left half-dead by thieves and bandits. But no matter what road you may find yourself on today, you may be half-dead, half-alive, barely making it. Jesus shows up, and he pours in the oil, and he pours in the wine, and he bandages, bandages you up, and he takes you to the innkeeper so that you'll get back up on your feet again. There's the road to Damascus. We all have a Damascus road a way that we're going that we think is right because our eyes are blinded. But I'm thankful for God's sovereign grace and mercy that He meets us on all roads. There are some dangerous roads people may find themselves on. There's the road of radical pluralism in our world today. What's the road of radical pluralism? They say that Christ is one of many ways that leads to truth or God, and that's a lie. There's the road of inclusivism, where people who never heard the gospel may obtain salvation if they respond to the light that they have. That's a lie from from hell. There's the road of universalism. And this road says, and it's an erroneous belief, that all mankind in the end will be saved. There's the road of restrictivism. It's the true road. And this road says there is no hope of salvation apart from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and putting your faith in him as Lord and Savior. Not all roads lead to God, but you can meet God in all roads. But you have to recognize that you're on the wrong road, that you're going the wrong way in life. And when God, in His mercy and grace, gives us a sign, and through that sign tells us you're on the wrong road, some are on a road that's going to lead to addiction. That's why my heart goes out to you, young people. Be careful with what you're looking at and what you're viewing on social media. That's why my heart goes out to you young people, you're starting to drink way too early. I don't believe in drinking any, I don't drink anymore. I got saved, I gave that up. I'm not saying if you have a little wine or beer that you're gonna go to hell. I'm not saying that, don't hear me say, I'm not saying that. But I see young people in their 20s going to restaurants, ordering margaritas and drinking and I don't judge you but I'm a father and I love you and I'm saying if you're starting now in your 20s what's it gonna be like in your 40s and 50s? You're on a road that can lead you to addiction. And I want you to get off that road. I want you to be on the straight road. I want you to be on the narrow road. I want you to be on that road that leads to life, that leads to victory, that leads to blessing. I want young men to get married one day, and I don't want them to be struggling with pornography. Your wife deserves better than that. Your kids one day deserve better than that. Your friends deserve better than that. Your Savior deserves better than that. So I don't care how far you've been traveling down that road, that road of addiction, I want you to know that Jesus can show up and he can take you off that crooked path and he can put you on the straight road. About 27 years ago, I was, I was working for UPS and I was a single and, I, and I, went, I went to El Paso, Texas to be a part of a, of a conference there at Pastor Charles Neiman's church, Abundant Living Faith Center. I was by myself. I had to get back to work quickly, so I jumped in my car, and I was listening to preaching and the Word of God. You know, I was like a young, single guy on fire and one day wanting to be a pastor, blah, blah, blah. So I'm just engrossed in listening to my cassette tapes. That's how long ago it was. And you get on I-10, you know, heading west out of El Paso, but you got to get on I-25 and head north. I I wasn't paying attention, and I stayed on I-10. And I just kept driving and praising God, driving and praising, until I saw a sign that said, Welcome to Arizona. (laughs) That's not where I was going. But that's the road I was on. That's the road I was on. What's the road you're on? You see, when I realized I was going the wrong way, I was on the wrong road. I turned my car around, and it took an extra three or four hours to get back home. But I finally made it. And when God in His love and mercy lets all of us know at different points in our journey that you're on the wrong road, stop, do a U-turn, and go the other way. Not all roads lead to God, but you can meet God on all roads. God can jump right in the middle of your road today. You might be on a road of sickness. You can get on a road to recovery by His mercy and grace. You might be on a road of financial struggle, financial bankruptcy, but God can change things around. You can, be on a, you can get on the road of, instead of a road that, never enough, a road that there's more than enough. A road of financial debt, you can get on a road of financial freedom and financial peace, and as a church, we want to help you. You might be on a road where you're struggling, who doesn't struggle with something? at different intervals in our lives. Let's not fool ourselves, we all do. That's why we're a church, not of perfect people. Church that serves a perfect savior. That's touched with the feelings of our infirmities, whatever road we may find ourselves on. That's why we have freedom ministry here at Trinity. Because we want you to walk in the freedom that Christ offers all of us. All roads don't lead to God, but you can meet God on all roads. And when he shows up, he says, okay. I'll take it from here and we say yes Lord what would you have me do see Jesus appeared to me January 1st 1980 he had been appearing to me in the most glorious the most glorious place that Jesus will appear to you the most glorious place that Jesus will appear to you is in the Holy Scriptures and he began to reveal himself to me in the Holy Scriptures I began to see him he began to appear to me through my sister through other Christians through Bible studies that I would accidentally find myself a part of young life in high school. He began to appear to me, most importantly through Scripture. I fell in love with him. And then on January 1st, 1980, he appeared to me in a dream. And I'm going to tell you something. When Jesus appears to you through Scripture, through a sermon, through a song, through art, through a friend, through a parent, through a a grandparent, through a godfather, a godmother, when Jesus appears in all of his splendor, and all of his glory, and you meet Jesus... You'll never be the same again. It doesn't mean you'll never have another struggle. It doesn't mean you're not going to have battles in life. No, but you'll never be the same again because Jesus appeared to you. That's my fear. My fear is far too many people, religion has appeared to them. Or a godly mom has appeared or a godly father has appeared. And thank God for, for Christianity in others. But you can't borrow it. You've got to get your own. You can't lean on someone else's faith. You've got to come to a firsthand, heartfelt, personal encounter with Jesus. And I pray that if you haven't had that yet, I pray that today in this service, this is your road to Damascus. And Jesus, by His mercy and grace and by His Holy Spirit, is appearing to you in this sermon. And He's calling you into His service. I'd like every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, by Your Holy Spirit, I thank You that You're reaching out to men and women right now. Some that are on a crooked path are going to be... They're going to make a U-turn, they're going to repent, and they're going to get on a, a street called straight. And you're going to change the course of their life, the destiny of their life, and those that they influence or will one day influence. Thank you for appearing in this me- through this message by your word in the hearts of men and women, speaking now to them, calling them by name. And our response is, Lord, what would you have me do? With heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're here today and you need to rededicate your life to Jesus or you've never accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, today's the day, now's the time. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer out loud with the rest of us. I want you to say it with your own mouth and mean it from your own heart. Here we go. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord, and be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive His love, His grace, and His forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my Father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit. Give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life, beginning today for the rest of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family?